Adams, Adamly, Adamowski, Bueller, Burns, Burns, Burns. <laughs> Gone with that mic in your hand. It's time for school. Rock school. With your hosts, Dr. Joe Burns. Wait a minute, you've just become fantastically popular. Yeah. Well, I'm not putting out any more music until you readjust my contract. And that's when the real money starts that's to come. Right. Fix yeah. it. Class is in. This is the Rock School Radio Show. We're here on the Rock School Radio Network. My name is Joe Burns. You are? Tammy Burns. Tammy Burns. I did this last week. I'm going to do it again, and this will be the last time I do it. All right. This time last year, I hadn't received a whole lot of contacts by those in the publishing industry, because usually during the July month, I do five interviews of authors right in a row. Yeah, you do. So last year, I made an offhanded comment that, hey, you got a book? I'd like to see it. Mm -hmm. So if you got a book, I'd like to see it. I'd like to read it. I will tell you we'd really, really like the book to be hardcover. That way we know for a fact that the book has some publishing behind it. Just just don't send me a Word file. Here's something I've been working on. No, 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 no. It's got to have some kind of publish behind it. Right. Uh, we'd like you to send us a copy. If at all possible, we'll take a hard copy, although we have received digital books in the past. And absolutely no guarantees, but... It could very well be a show that we do. So yeah, if you got a could. book, yeah, it could. Yeah, it could. What uh, what you need to do is go to the website to contact us. That's oh. southeastern.edu slash rockschool, all one word. Southeastern.edu slash rockschool, all one word. Perfect. Okay? If you got a book, go ahead. But again, don't don't send me fan fiction where what if Paul McCartney's bass was alive? No, I'm not interested. No, no, no. I need something that's got historical elements to it or attempts to explain some aspect of the music industry, copyright, trademark, that kind of thing. Yes, yes, yes? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. All right. We're talking about when musicians got royally messed over Mm -hmm. by not only managers, mainly managers, but the music business in general. If you remember about five shows ago, we did something called Parody Bands, and one of the bands we talked about was the Bonzo Doodog Band. I can't even say that. Known as the Bonzo Band. Some people just call it the Doodah Band. The guy who was in that, Neil Ennis, he was the guy that sang the song Death Cab for Cutie, Mm -hmm. which is where the band Death Cab for Cutie got their name. He was a member of the parody rock band The Ruttles. And collaborated with Monty Python. When John Lennon and Paul McCartney sued him for plagiarism, he lost copyright to all those songs. Yep. Fine. He worked with Monty Python. Except nobody trademarked the Bonzo Doodah Band, Bonzo Dog Doodah Band name. And a promoter just went ahead and did it without them. 
Just took it, huh? And then claimed copyright ownership oh. of Monty Python songs that were in the Spamalot no. musical. Oh, no, no, no. So this guy, once again, Neil Ennis, is, is out of money. So he goes to this new website called Pledge Music. It's like a Kickstarter, except it's only for musicians. Mm-hmm. He gets a bunch of music or a bunch of money coming his way, and the darn website collapses and it takes all the money. No. He gets bupkis. How about that? And then the one we're going to play. You have to know Big Mama Thornton. Yeah. She had the first hit with Hound Dog, and then obviously Elvis redoes it. Elvis sells 10 million copies, but Big Mama Thornton was no slouch either. She sold at least 750,000 copies, maybe as many as a million. How come you don't know, Joe? Because it was back when BMI was this brand new licensing for blues and rock, and nobody cared. And Records weren't kept. Well, it's not that they weren't kept. It was it was African Americans and hill people doing country and it was seen as lesser. It was wrong, but that's the way it was seen. So, like you said, it's not just that records weren't kept. It was, they weren't kept because of who these people were. Gotcha. Right? Right. So, like le- many blues musicians, she was paid a buyout. She sang the song mm-hmm. and received $500 and nothing else, mm. even though the song went to number one on both the pop and the R&B chart. Right. But what about the song Ball and Chain? She wrote it. Janis Joplin covered it. She had to make a whole bunch, right? Yeah, she did. No, for less than $1,000, she sold the song to Baytone Records. They kept all the rights. Good They God. collected the royalties. Not right. <sighs> Big Mama Thornton here on Rock School. You ain't- Coming out of uh, Big Mama Thornton, let's talk about the Drifters, as in Under the Boardwalk. Uh, they were a group that didn't even own their own name. What do you mean? It was owned by their manager, George Treadwell. He was a jazz trumpeteer and the manager of the Drifters. Treadwell said the band was a money maker for him. He owned them. Oh. They were employees. Under him. Now, I'm going to give you a number. You're going to go, no way. Remember, it continues after the hit-making drifters. Okay. There were 39 different lineups under him. He dies. It gets taken over by his wife. And you say, how is it possible there are 39 different lineups? Here's the thing. Once success hit, imposter groups... And secondary groups that were owned by George Treadwell as well were starting to pop up. You see, the band name wasn't trademarked, so anyone could use it. So at one point in time, Treadwell and his wife later on had at least 10 groups 
called the Drifters going around and playing fairs and such. I got you. When you showed up and they were going under the boardwalk, the chance of you actually seeing somebody who was in the hit making Drifters was almost boopkiss. All the way around. I have never heard this before. Isn't that amazing? Yes. Marvin Gaye. Marvin Gaye. Motown, it's got some good, it's got some bad, but Barry Gordy is the guy. Barry Gordy wanted a pop album, but Gaye argues for a political album. What comes out is what's going on. Mm-hmm. It goes multiple platinum. Yeah, it does. Right? Okay. Sitting on my counter right now, dude. Right. So, Gordy requests another album, mm-hmm. and Marvin Gaye is given 30 days to complete it. I mean, that's fair. 30, 30 days? Yeah, of course. 30. That's not terrible. Oh, my god. Finish it up. Okay. He did. However, it was all political. Marvin Gaye distrusted the government, and Gordy simply did not want to rock the boat. You can still find the album. It's called You're the Man, and the lead single, You're the Man, was released. However, Gordy refused to upset the political balance and refused to promote it. The single hit the R&B chart, but not much else. The rest of the album sits on a shelf until it finally gets released in the 2000s. Because of it, Gay just descends into drug abuse and dies at his parents' home yep. by the hand of his father with a gun that Gay gave him right. by, you know, for a, a present. Yes. April 1st. 1984, which is even worse because it's April 1st. Yeah. So when you heard Marvin Gaye is dead. Oh, it's a joke. It's it's, a joke. What a horrible joke. Why would you do that? Yeah. Except it wasn't a joke. Here's the song, Marvin Gaye. You're the man. Rock school. Marvin Gaye, you're the man, talking about times when managers just messed over their people. In 2002, Brad Paisley asked to see his royalty statements since he felt he was being messed over. Yeah. So the lawyers said, no, you can't see them. But why? And they showed him in the contract he signed he was not allowed. Here's the thing. There comes a point in time. Eddie Van Halen explains this real well. Our first two albums did so well. We had a terrible deal. We just simply looked at the, you know, the the, the record company and said, yeah. no, we're not putting out a third album until you, you know, right. do, do better by us. Give us more money. That's right. And the, the, by this point in time, they've proved that, look, you put out another album, you're going to make more money. So that's what they do. That's what Brad Paisley had done. He signed a crud contract. 
So he sued, and part of the suit was he refused to put out any more music, and it was repaired. That's that's the idea. I you, like that. You want to become so popular that you have the ability. Now, look, they could say to you, you're a nobody, so we're going to give you this crud contract. Wait a minute. You've just become fantastically popular. Yeah. Well, I'm not putting out any more music until you readjust my contract. And that's when the real money starts that's to come. Right. Fix yeah. it. Tom Petty. God bless Tom Petty. Listen to this. Mm -mm. In 1979, Petty's original label, Shelter Records, who did right by him, was bought by MCA. Petty had already had two huge albums. He said the new MCA deal, remember MCA who now owns Shelter so they could do what they wanted with the deals. Right. It was so bad that he personally financed the next album by himself going a half a million dollars in debt. By mm -hmm. the way, that next album would be Damn the Torpedoes. Oh. Right. Wow. He refused to release it because, remember, he did it. Yeah. He paid for it. It's his. MCA could not just walk up and go, hey, we'll release this. You go jump in a lake. It's mine. I paid for it. So MCA sues him. And Petty, in what may be the most brilliant rock and roll move ever goes bankrupt mm. by going bankrupt he voided his contract completely and mca had no choice but to come to the table wow isn't that brilliant yeah it is then in 1981 mm -hmm. god bless tom petty again petty was so popular mca wanted to sell the next album for nine dollars and 98 cents per album or cd well, CDs not yet. Now, it'd probably be just albums. A full dollar more than the average. The idea was we'll take our biggest selling people, we'll charge another buck. Right. I know from business sense it makes sense. So Petty says, no, because he said, y you keep doing this crap. Albums are going to be $20. No one's going to be able to afford them, and right. I'm just not doing that. True. true and they true. said to him, no, you can't do that. To which he said, I own the album. Oh. And they kind of went, <sighs> All right. <sighs> okay, okay. Oh, Petty did it. I don't know if it was his idea, but whoever did it was just gorgeously done. There you go. Tom Petty here on Rock School. All right, coming into the first break, let's talk about Dr. Dre. Uh, he who is a billionaire now that he's sold Beats headphones. Yeah, I would sell he is. it too. Bye-bye. But in 2015, he put out a suit against Death Row Records saying he's not receiving as much money, nor does he have enough rights over his album The Chronic, okay. which was just spectacularly successful. Well, in that 2015 lawsuit, a judge ruled that the label did not 
have the rights to sell the album, The Chronic, digitally because none of that was in the contract. The judge rules that Dre was owed far more money from mm. online sales wow. than the 1992 in, album entitled him to receive. Okay, Here's how it came out. I love this. Dre receives the digital money. Death Row retains the rights to sell the album in early formats, cassette, vinyl, and 8-track. I'm sure at that time, that seemed like an unbelievably big win for Dr. Dre. Yeah. But then comes this new upheaval of vinyl. Yeah. And I'll make you a bet that Death Row sold a ton. You know it. Of vinyl. Yes. So it's one of those where they both basically succeeded. NSYNC was in the middle of a messy legal dispute against BMG and Lou Pearlman before he went to jail and died. Uh Uh BMG and Pearlman sued the boy band because they were trying to leave and go to Jive Records. They sued him for $150 million. So what happens? Well, they reach a settlement in 1999. Here's the settlement. NSYNC has the right to control its own name. BMG and Perlman no longer own InSync. They can tour, record, and do anything they want under their name. Right. However, BMG and Perlman, who again went to jail, mm-hmm. have the right to continue the distribution of the music that made them that popular. Okay. So everybody, I guess, succeedingly wins. I guess so. Inside of this. Who's listening to us? WYAP, Clay, West Virginia. We're on the yap, Tammy. We're yeah, on we the are. yap. Yeah, we Back in a minute here on Rock School. break TLC takes a page from Tom Petty in 1995 the all-female R&B group files for bankruptcy even though their sophomore album crazy sexy cool to that point had sold over 5 million copies how was it possible they made a horrible no money deal with their singer pebbles manager So instead of going ahead and suing her, they filed bankruptcy. Rather than saying, well, we're going to come after you, they just filed bankruptcy and said, look, we have no more ties to you. The bankruptcy released us from everything. So the deal had to be renegotiated. Pebbles was taking not only a little bit of their royalties money, was taking it was like a 360 deal, taking from touring, taking from this, what have you. The deal went from less than 3% to 18% of the royalties, and they became rich young women, but it took going into bankruptcy. Yeah, I did. And it was entirely possible. I don't know why someone would do this, but it was entirely possible. Same with Tom Petty. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're in bankruptcy. We don't want you anymore. MCA did not have to negotiate with him, and Pebbles did not have to negotiate with them. That's true. I it's forgot in, about right. that. Right. That's the darn thing about giving an ultimatum. Yeah. You either do this or I'm leaving. Yeah, I'm, I'm gone. Bye. <laughs> what? You don't yeah. want me? Yeah, it took a little bit. Ugh. 
If you're looking for another reason to believe that David Bowie was the man, uh-huh. David Bowie was being managed by his friend Tony DeFries. David Bowie was shortchanged because DeFries was taking half of Bowie's royalty, uh. saying that, look, 50% makes it harder to fight for good record deals, right? Bowie fires DeFries in 1975. In 1997, David Pullman comes up with the idea, his new manager, comes up with the idea of Bowie Bonds. Have you ever heard this? Never. Bo- and neither had I. Never. Bowie Bonds. He issued each bond at the face value of $1,000. So it's a bond. It's really hard to lose the money as long as what you've bonded into is making a profit. Okay. There was a 7.5% guaranteed return, but the principal, as it said, Uh could be reduced if times changes, which they did with streams. Bowie raised $55 million and used the money to pay back the creditors for the bonds that failed. So what happened was all the royalties revert back to David Bowie. What? Like I said, you want more proof that David Bowie is the man? James Brown, Ashford and Simpson, Isley Brothers, and Holland Dozier Holland all released bonds against their future record I've earnings. I've never heard. Is that insane? Are there any out there today? I don't know, but I wish I had bought a Bowie bond because I just would want the greenish white piece of paper to put on the wall and say, I own point zero 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 three two percent of David Bowie. I would have sold it. Oh, he's so cool. Here's Bowie on Rock School. Coming into the bottom of the hour, how about this? July 1996, Columbia Records makes the decision to drop and no longer promote Johnny Cash. Mm. They decided this 26 years after they signed him to a contract in 1960. Ring of Fire, Daddy Sang Bay, Sunday Morning Coming Down. I mean, pick it. Eight number one albums in the span of eight years. Are you kidding me? Yeah. You know what they never did? What? They never told Johnny. What do you... They were going to stop promoting him. What do you mean they never told him? He learned about it by reading about it in the local newspaper. Oh, that is so wrong. Now, we all know that Johnny Cash was brought back, and it's a show in and of itself, and that's when you got, you know, When the Man Comes Around and all those songs. Yeah. uh, Part of the America uh, run of albums, but at that point in time... He read that he was, it's like getting up in the morning and reading you're fired on Facebook. Yeah. And wondering, is this the truth? Do I go into work? 
Goodness. Well, welcome to the bottom of the hour. I'm Joe Burns. I'm Tammy Burns. These are the rock and roll dates for seven days and 70 seconds, May 24th, all the way through May 30th. Go ahead, Tammy. You got Monday. Go. May 24th, 2000. 50 Cent is shot nine times while sitting in a parked car. He makes the shooting his main bio point and becomes a superstar. May 25th, 1991, Billboard implements SoundScan to track album sales instead of just reporting by these record stores. Garth Brooks jumps to number one. May 26, 2008, Sir Paul McCartney becomes Dr. Sir Paul McCartney when he received an honorary doctorate from... Yale University. My doctorate is not honorary. I wrote a dissertation. Blah, blah, blah. May 27th, 1994, the Eagles perform for Hell Freezes Over. They're going on tour, which will become the first tour to ever sell tickets for $100 or more. May 28th, 1982, Rocky Three hits theaters and Survivor's Eye of the Tiger goes to number one. <laughs> Dun, dun, dun. May 29th, 1983, Van Halen becomes the highest paid band in the world for a single concert, $1.5 million for 90 minutes on stage, paid by Steve Wozniak. <gasps> they would be beaten the next day when Woz pays David Bowie the same, plus the cost of a first-class plane ticket. Oh. And then May 30th, Dolly Parton marries Carl Thomas Dean, owner of a Nashville asphalt road paving business. Laugh if you want, but he is still Mr. Dolly Parton 54 years later. Woohoo! That wraps up seven days and 70 seconds. Harry Nielsen. Put the lime in the coconut and make it all up. You probably know the story, or if you don't, you should look it up. Uh, Mama Cass and then Keith Moon both die in an apartment, it's British, so a flat, owned by Harry Nielsen. He then sells it to Pete Townsend and is sort of really taken aback by the fact that these two good friends and two rock stars died in his apartment. Yeah, 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 yeah. It can't get any worse, can it? Yes. Well, yes, it can. In 1990... He had hired a financial advisor named Cindy Sims. He also gave her the ability to have complete control over his money. He goes to bed one night worth over $8 million. She took it. He wakes up the next day completely broke. Over the next three years, he has three heart attacks. The third one finally kills Mm. him, but Mm. he lives Mm. through friends loaning him money and performing with other people. Apparently, the one who supported him the best was Ringo Starr, giving him multiple loans for $25,000 or more. He becomes a terrible alcoholic, and I told you the third heart attack kills him. Mm. That was in 1994. Goodness. The woman, Cindy Sims, is obviously found out, and she goes to court, and she is convicted. She serves, ready for this, mm-hmm. 18 months. <sighs> That's it. I wish I could tell you exactly what happened to the money. I don't know. I don't know. Here comes Harry Nielsen on Rock School. I'll say goodbye to all my sorrow, and by tomorrow. I'll be on my way I guess the 
Lord must be in New York City. He's free here in New York City. Okay, coming into the second break, Tammy, do you know who Joss Stone is? No, I don't. Who she, is it? Well, she's an English singer, or at least was extremely popular in England. She had a couple hits over here, uh, a remake of Take a Piece of My Heart, and also a song with Common called Tell Me What We're Gonna Do Now. Here's the thing, very popular in Europe. She's big in Europe, Tammy. EMI was the the group in charge of her music. However, they get bought out by a private equity firm in 2007 and complained no working relationship with the new owners and her fourth album flopped. The idea is that, look, you know, if you don't promote me, right, I can't do anything. I can create the best album in the world, but if you don't make a point of telling people about it. And EMI basically said, well, the, the subsidiary that bought EMI was, well, you know, if it's that good an album, people should, you know, they just buy it and all that. So she huh. makes a statement. I got to get out of here. Right. She buys herself out of her own contract. Smart girl. There's no hard numbers, but the suggested number that I saw in two or three different um, articles, I guess, online was $22 million. Oh. And it left her completely flat broke. Ooh, it would leave me broke also. So she goes on the road, shops around for a new label. It doesn't say who the actual label is, but she finds or founds Stoned Records, where she releases her own stuff and then uses some other distributor. Yeah. And then signs people to it and apparently is making enough to, you know, make the house payments at the end of the month. Goodness. So, all right. Who's listening to us here on this here Rock School Radio Show? WZ. Oh, WXZY, Kane PA. Isn't that, I, I've read that a hundred times. You just want to say XYZ, don't you? I do. Don't you? I do. All right. I back, didn't. Back in a minute here on Rock School. Coming out of the break, Florence Ballard. Mm-hmm. Florence Ballard was part of the original Supremes. In 1968, she began negotiating with Motown to be released from the label, to be paid her royalties, and then I'll go. Motown decides, okay, we don't want the friction, so they paid her a one-time payment of, and I'd love to know how they came up with this, right? $139,804.94. How about that? Mm. Well, she tries to parlay this into a solo career and uh, bleh, complete flop. In 1971, she takes Motown back to court for additional royalty payments, and she loses. She's literally out of cash because she used the, like, 140000 to attempt a solo career. Right. She moves in with her sister, and her life ends February 21, 1970. 
six. Uh, yeah, he, she was complaining of numbness in the extremities, and it yeah. was found out that it was cardiac arrest brought on by coronary thrombosis. Uh, she was 32. You got to know that getting messed over by Motown yes. didn't help with no, that. No, it didn't. If you know anything about the Runaways, a lot of people just simply go, oh, they were the precursors to the Go-Go's. Uh-huh. Oh, a whole lot more. A whole lot more. The Runaways was the first real all-girl rock band, and it's Joan Jett. You've probably heard of her. A little bit. Sherry Curie, you've heard of her. Lita Ford and Mickey Steele. You might not know Mickey Steele, but she went on to be with the Bangles. Okay. okay? All teenagers when they joined. They were all either discovered or brought to Kim Fowley by Rodney Bingenheimer because he went out and did clubs on the Sunset Strip. Uh Okay, here's the problem. Kim Fowley was a pig. He was a predator who cruised high schools looking for hot girls to start bands with. He would also take out ads asking for young, blonde, blue-eyed girls to be his girlfriend. And you you know why guys do these things? Because at some point in time, it worked. (laughs) You know, if you're a girl out at a club Uh and some guy's coming up and going, you know, did you fall out of heaven because you're killing me with your eyes? Ha, 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 ha. They do that stuff because at least once in their life, it worked. Wow. So they keep going. He, Fowley, Uh pitted the band members against each other, and one of them came forward, Mickey Steele, stating, look, this guy is a predator. Uh She was fired from the band. Sherry Curie said the band never made a penny, and they parted ways with Fowley in 1977 and hired Toby Mammoth, but by then, all the appeal was over. Sherry Curie tours, obviously singing runaway songs. Joan Jett is Joan Jett. Uh Lita Ford is... Lita Ford and Mickey Steele went on to the Bangles. Now they all succeeded, obviously, right in their own way. But you didn't make a penny off of Cherry Bomb, you know, Goodness. A, 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 a proto-punk song that's going to last forever. Wow! Here's Runaways on Rock School. Okay, last break. I I have so many of these, so I'm going to miss a few. So if your favorite, like the Dixie Chicks and other places like that, was not hit, mea culpa. I know I could do a third show on this, but, you know, two is enough. Courtney Love, in 2000, is sued by Universal Music over five allegedly undelivered albums. Love countersues, saying that the label treated the artists so unfairly, and the jury bought it. The company made $40 million in album sales from the rock band Hole. She and the band members only collected $2 million in royalties. Mm. To which you say, well, $2 million's pretty good. But see, they had to split it between all of them. So you make somebody $40 million, he gives you, what, $750,000? Mm, not good. As part of the settlement as well, Universal agreed to waive rights to all future recordings from Love and restore her ownership 
of unreleased whole material. To which you say, why? That why would they do that? Just get her out of her contract for those five upcoming albums. Why? Because, and this is one of the reasons that Dave Grohl dislikes her so much. Love and the other members of the Cobain estate grants universal permission to release new Nirvana packages, including a compilation album with a never-before-released track and a box set with a whole bunch of rarities on it. And Grohl, who obviously was a third of Nirvana, said, you gotta be kidding me. Mm. So that's where that is. Wow. Here's one we'll end up on, and, and if you were thinking about artists being messed over, this may have jumped up and bit you. Prince... Remember when he performed on MTV and he wrote the word slave on the side of his face? I do, yeah. Do you remember when he changed his name from Prince to a symbol? I do. Why? Why would he do that? This is so much more involved. I am simply giving you the Fisher-Price version, okay? In 1979, Prince signs with Warner Brothers. In the early 90s, Prince then signs another deal with Warner slash MPG for $100 million in six albums. But as part of the deal, in order for him to get that $100 million, Warner Brothers retained all rights to his back catalog. So they took everything he had done up to that point. So that's why Prince wrote Slave on his face and then slightly afterwards changed his name to a symbol, Mm -hmm. basically saying, I'm acting as a slave to you Mm. and you're not getting me. You're not getting Prince. You're getting this symbol, which, by the way, looked a lot like his guitar. (laughs) Why weren't those things marketed? I don't know. You know, that would seem to me like some guitar. I know they were made. I think it was by a guy in New Orleans. But those those were one-off guitars. Mm -hmm. Why not make them? That's true. I bet people would have bought them. I wouldn't have. I'm not that good. Then... In 2014, he, Prince, was so stunningly popular that Warner Brothers again comes calling and makes the choice of giving him ownership of his back catalog back. Thus, he stops being the artist formerly known as Prince and becomes the artist currently known as Prince. Goodness. And that wraps the whole thing up. Believe me, there's a lot more to the Prince story, but, you know, I'm running out of time, and to get into it would just be minutia on minutia. So that wraps it up. I'm Joe Burns. I'm Tammy Burns. That's it. Class is dismissed. <laughs>